So, the Gospel according to Paul, as it's often been called, of course, I'm speaking of the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, We started this letter last time looking at the first couple of verses, kind of laying out an introduction to the book and going through the first couple of passages. And today we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 4, since we're only just barely getting into it. I'll go ahead and start with the very beginning. But we're really going to focus on verses 3 and 4. So let me go ahead and dive in here. Verse 1 of the book of Romans. Grab your Bible. Of course, we mentioned yesterday, you might want to grab a pen, a notebook, a highlighter, um, it's just a good idea to jot notes, underline passages, um, to just as you as you dig into the scripture. And so, but here we go, Romans uh, chapter one, starting in verse one again. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now again, we mentioned yesterday, Paul considers himself to be a slave to Christ. He is a voluntary servant of his master. Um, it's uh, this, this, this attitude and even his explanation of that or reiterating of it or reaffirming of it is found throughout much, many places in his writings. Uh, we mentioned yesterday, uh, as we looked at 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul again refers to himself as a servant. However, he uses a different word than he does here in the beginning of the book of Romans, and a word which he often uses uh, here, like he does in Romans, is the word doulos, a slave, a servant, oftentimes a voluntary servant of that master. Uh, the word he used in 1 Corinthians 4 spoke of somebody, uh, sort of other elements of this concept of servanthood, the idea of being an under-rower, somebody who is um, not even necessarily seen, somebody who is just doing the work uh, that is required in that. And he is happily so. He desires to be seen that way as both a servant and as the passage in 1 Corinthians 4 goes on, also recognizing his responsibility as a steward. A steward of what? Well, as he says here in uh, um, uh, in verse 1 of Romans 1, the gospel of God. This is what he is set apart for. He is sanctified for. He is called apart by the Lord for this purpose, for the sake of the gospel of God, which, as we said again last time, is uh, is a term that can mean either or both the idea that the gospel was given by God, and it's also a gospel that speaks of God. And, of course, both things are true. God gave this good news, and, of course, it refers to him and the work that he ultimately has accomplished toward our salvation in his Son, Christ Jesus, God incarnate in the flesh. And this gospel was, in fact, promised beforehand through, as he says in verse 2, his prophets in the the Holy Scriptures. Now, when he says the Holy Scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament at this point, because even though this letter is written somewhere around 57, 58 AD, uh, some of Paul's writings by this point have been written. And as we read in Peter's writings, that these scriptures that Paul writes are to be seen on par with scripture themselves. In other words, they're recognized as holy writ, even as the Old Testament was. Um, But that said, when Paul would refer to the scriptures, Now, whether in Romans or other places, whenever the New Testament refers to the scriptures, other than what we're just talking about in Peter's reference uh, to Paul's writings, generally speaking, what is in view there is the Old Testament scriptures, which means that what Paul is saying is, is that this gospel message actually 
is uh, is begin, begins to be unveiled even in the Old Testament. Um, a matter of fact, turn to First Corinthians chapter fifteen for just a second. Uh, again, we are going to turn to passages, and so you might want to have a pen ready and uh, or a highlighter or something. But in chapter fifteen of First uh, Corinthians, it's the famous chapter on Paul's writing about the resurrection. Uh, why it is so central to the gospel message? Why, uh, it gives evidence to to demonstrate that the, the the resurrection really happened. People actually saw Jesus after the resurrection, including himself. Um, himself, uh, Paul, someone who was violently opposed to this person of Christ and the way, those who were followers of Christ, until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and became its mo- the gospel's most vigorous supporter, church planter, evangelist, and so on. Well, here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says these words in the first four verses. Now, I make known to you, I remind you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which also you stand, and by which you are being saved. Okay, there's a lot there that is worth spending some time thinking about. We won't do that today necessarily for time, but let me encourage you to come back to this passage and think through what Paul is saying there. This gospel that he preached and that they received is that that they stand upon and they are saved by. If, in fact, you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain... And here we go. For I delivered to you as of first importance, or among first things, or of highest priority, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So what Paul is saying there is that in the Old Testament, you have both hints and overt passages that speak of the idea that Christ would come and would die for the sins of the world and ultimately would be buried and would rise again. I can think of passages like Daniel chapter 9, uh, Isaiah tw- uh, 53, end of 52, end of 53, uh, Psalm 22. We think of passages like this that speak of the crucifixion or the fact that the Messiah would be cut off and would be killed. Um, and then, of course, the idea that his soul would not see corruption, his body would not see corruption in the grave, that he would... Uh, ultimately rise, there are implicit and explicit passages in the Old Testament that point toward this very thing. Uh, Paul and Galatians would say that the scriptures ultimately uh, kept us walking between the lines, leading us to the person of Christ. Um, Jesus would say that the Old Testament scriptures, John 5, spoke of him, right? Well, Paul here is saying that beforehand through his prophets, this message was promised, this gospel, this good news was promised even in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And in verse 3, here we go. This promise concerned his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Let's start there. Now, the promise of Messiah also, among the passages I just mentioned, also we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, I'll just summarize this because it's it's a long passage and you can read it. But David's desire is to build God a house. And he recognizes the, the, the very nice place that he is living, whereas the Lord is still um, living, quote-unquote. Uh, he is, uh, his, his place is this tabernacle that has been traveling through the wilderness uh, throughout Israel, Israel's history to that point. And as David sees this tent, uh, no doubt the tent has got lots of mileage on it at this point. And he realizes it's not right for God to live in a tent while I'm living in this cedar home, this this cedar-paneled place, you know, this palace, essentially. 
And so he purposes in his heart he wants to build God a house. And he tells his plans to Nathan the prophet. And Nathan uh, says, David, do all this in your heart. You know, like, what a great idea. Who, why wouldn't God want this? Well, God speaks to Nathan and says, you spoke a bit presumptuously. David's not able to build a house for me because there's too much blood on his hands from all the wars and everything that he's fought. However, I'm going to build him a house, a spiritual house. Ultimately, through the house of David would come the Messiah. And Nathan goes and tells David this word from the Lord. And David is just overcome. He is overwhelmed. And sure enough, even though he can't physically build the house, it turns out he does actually sort of prepare much of the uh, uh, many of the supplies and materials in that for the temple, so Solomon could utilize those things when it came time for him to build it. But in terms of the spiritual house God was building for David, through David's lineage, we ultimately see the, the coming of Messiah. As a matter of fact, this becomes the subject of the two genealogies that we read in Matthew and the other one being in Luke. Matthew takes his genealogy back to Abraham, demonstrating that Christ is fully Jewish, and through the line of David, uh, ultimately starting with Abraham, but going through the line of David, we see that uh, Jesus has a right to the throne because he is of kingly lineage and he's, and he's a Jew. Luke's gospel goes, or a genealogy in his gospel goes all the way back to Adam, showing that he has, a, that Messiah has association, association with mankind. The book of Ruth, for example, has a lot to do with this idea of the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, the one who is uh, related to mankind, but yet able to ultimately deliver mankind. And so uh, Luke goes back to Adam, but through David, through a different son than Matthew does. Matthew go through, goes through Solomon. Uh, Luke goes through uh, David's son, Nathan, different Nathan, and, um, um, and ultimately comes uh, uh, you know, to, to uh, the birth of Christ through that vein. So these two genealogies ultimately have their distinctions and the reasons for the particular path that they take. Um, one ultimately uh, in, in, uh, in Mary's family tree, and then the other one ultimately in Joseph's. But that being the, the case, both of them go through David. Why? Because the promise was made of course, it starts back in Genesis. It gets made to Abraham, then Isaac gets reiterated, Jacob, and so on. It's ultimately reiterated to David. The Messiah would come through his line, and then ultimately we see that Christ uh, does come through that line. And so he is, uh, concerning his son, he was born physically a descendant of David, right? Now, that's the physical person of Christ, of, of Jesus of Nazareth. He is born uh, physically in the flesh as a as a, a direct descendant of David. Um, now, in verse 4, it goes on to speak about the other nature of Christ, and that is that he was declared the Son of God. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth, this, uh, this person that was born in Bethlehem and ultimately grew up to be this rabbi that grew up to be embraced as as a physical Messiah for Israel, but he was an entirely different kind of Messiah than Israel was looking for in his first coming. What they didn't expect is what is implied here, or not implied, but expressly stated in verse 4, the idea that he is also the Son of God. Now, when it says declared, it doesn't mean that he necessarily is all of a sudden named the Son of God, per se, but rather it becomes clear that he is the Son of God. It is demonstrated that he is, in fact, the Son of God. Uh, because of the resurrection, uh, what does that mean? Well, basically, the, what, what, what is being spoken of here by Paul is that we are looking at the person of Jesus of Nazareth 
not just as a mere man, but even as Jesus himself declared himself to be, the very Son of God, God in the flesh. When he told the disciples that if they had seen him, they had seen the Father, (coughs) he wasn't blurring the lines between Father and Son in the triune sense of the nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, or Father, Word, and Spirit, you know, um, would be another way to think of that. Um, but is, is, he is acknowledging that you are in, in, in seeing, in hearing, in interacting with me, you're in fact not just interacting with the physical person that he is, but you are in fact interacting with the divine that came and ultimately incarnate uh, became a man here on earth. And Paul is making that point very, very clear. He is both man, but he is also God. He is unique in this way, the one and the only God-man, uh, who became the, the God who became man, walking among us in the incarnation there in Bethlehem, uh, miraculously through the virgin birth, as the scriptures tell us. Um, now, um, this becomes the central starting point to understanding the gospel. As we will talk about it, as we read through Paul's writings through the rest of the book, we will um, talk about this subject and elements connected to this subject throughout because it's an inherent part of the whole argument, discussion that Paul makes. But the person of Christ is central to the gospel because he is both God and man, and therefore he is both able to take our sins upon himself in that he identifies with us and he ultimately is a man like you and I are. Um, But he is more than just a man. He is also fully God. And because he is God, two things come to the fore. Number one, he is sinless. So when he came into the world through the virgin birth, when, um, as the angel said, the Holy Spirit uh, ultimately um, um, just miraculously implanted uh, in Mary, this this uh, this you know, the, the 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 infant, the fetus, the the baby Jesus, um, in accordance, by the way, with the promise in Genesis three fifteen, the seed of the woman, the idea that she would ultimately there was something inherent in that expression. It's not the seed of the woman; it's the seed of the man. But in this prophecy in Genesis three fifteen, there is the seed of the woman that is spoken of. In other words, something different is in view here. Uh, later on in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, verse 14, the idea of the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. Um, some translations, uh, 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 um, not inaccurately, but they t- the, the, the word there speaks of a maiden, but the implication is that of a virgin. Um, the prophecy that is given there is of something miraculous happening, which means clearly it's not just that a girl got pregnant. That wouldn't be miraculous at all. But there is something about the way that uh, this sign that that ultimately would come to pass, and that is the you know that's why the scriptures, uh, the English translations tend to interpret that as the virgin will conceive. That is what's implied there. Something miraculous takes place, again in accordance with Genesis three fifteen. Mary, of course, becomes the fulfillment of that as the angel Gabriel shows up to her and and calls her uh, uh, blessed among women and, and just you know beloved of God. And this this plan is laid out for her, and she graciously and humbly accepts. Uh, she will become the, the, the mother of the Messiah. She doesn't fully understand uh, all this, but it is interesting and significant that in this word given to her, 
Uh, this one that is to be born within her will ultimately sit on the throne of his father David forever. He will rule over the house of Jacob forever. This is an extremely Jewish thing, and it has to do with the very prophecies we were talking about earlier. But because he is man, he identifies with us. He's able to go to the cross in our place and die for our sins. However, because he is God, he is sinless. In other words, the sins he takes upon himself, none of them are his. They're all ours. This is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5 that he who knew no sin, verse 21, became sin that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, The perfect for the imperfect, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. And this wonderful transaction and transfer takes place where his righteousness is given to us because he took our unrighteousness upon himself and ultimately died for our sins. Only God in the flesh could have done that. Any man would have only been dying for his own sins, certainly not vicariously for anyone else's. But the perfect Son of God, God in the flesh, God incarnate, comes into the world, not just to teach, not just to do miracles, not just to do all of those things, but rather also to take upon himself our sins as only he could and pay for them once and for all. Now, of course, this idea of Christ being God, of Jesus of Nazareth being God in the flesh, was something that um, uh, even the disciples themselves started getting their minds around. But his detractors, in particular people like the Pharisees and the scribes, they did not believe this at all. In fact, there's a great passage in John chapter 10 uh, where there's an encounter with Jesus and uh, the Pharisees uh, who ultimately are accusing him of blasphemy. Uh, Let me go ahead and read um, um, John chapter 10, and uh, I'll just start in verse 24. So John's Gospel chapter 10, verse 24. And the Jews gathered round him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. Uh, You do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. So essentially they're saying, let us know for sure if you're the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I have told you, but not only have I told you, but the works that I do should demonstrate this. It should become obvious that I am the Messiah because of what I'm doing. Uh, You might recall how uh, later on in the same gospel, John sends a couple of his disciples uh, ultimately uh, to to Jesus and and on behalf of John, and they say, are you the coming one or should we wait for another? And Jesus essentially says this to them. He says, go tell John what you've seen and heard. You know, the dead are raised and the sick are made well and such. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And so it's not just that he's saying it, but he's demonstrating it. He's proving it. Okay. Uh, Now, the passage goes on back in John 10. Um, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. In other words, they are not believing in him. They're not his sheep. Um, Now, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. Think of the audacity of that statement, by the way. Uh, There are those who say Jesus never claimed to be God. Um, He did explicitly on a number of occasions. But even implicitly, it's extremely clear what he is saying. I give to them eternal life. Those who hear me, those are my sheep. I give them eternal life. He's claiming divine prerogative with these things. These are things only God can do. And they get the message. Notice how this continues. I give eternal life to them and they never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my Father are one. Okay? Now, 
people have read this passage and they've tried to explain away what Jesus is saying. But let me give you a hint uh, as to what he is saying. If you want to know what Jesus is saying, look at how the response to him is. Look at what happens. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Okay? They want to kill him. Now, it's as though Jesus knows we're going to be reading this later. And so he kind of pushes them to make it clear why they're going to stone him so that there's no ambiguity about what he's saying and that they're understanding it. It's, ex- it's exceptionally clear. Watch what happens here. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And Jesus answered him, or the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They absolutely understood what Jesus was saying. Okay? And I love the fact that Jesus really drew that out of them. As he stood there, they've got rocks in hand. They're about to stone him. Is he nervous? Of course not. Why would he be? He's God. His time has not yet come. This is going to play out the way that has always been divinely decreed to play out. They may have the rocks in his hand, but he has the whole situation in his hand. And so, again, he draws it out of them. Why you? So, okay, just to be clear, why are you stoning me? I've done lots of good works in my Father's name. Why are you stoning me? We're not stoning you for the works you're doing. We're stoning you for blasphemy, which is to say that you being a man are making yourself out to be God. Crystal clear. Okay? So now that the, the whole thing's on the table, that this whole thing started with them wanting to know whether he's the Messiah. He says, yes, I've said I'm the Messiah, and I've even done works to prove it. And then he goes on to kind of pull the veil back a little further and help them to understand. Of course, they won't hear him because they're not his sheep, but he pulls back the veil a little further in, in order to, to, to make clear something else about the fact, or about his Messiahship. He's not just a man who's come to sort of overthrow Rome or something. He's not only a man. He is also, in fact, God. And he's come, really, not just to put down, in his first coming, not to put down any Roman Empire or anything. He's come to vanquish a much greater enemy, and that is the enemy that is sin and death. And so they want to stone him, and they make clear why. Because he's claiming to be God. They know this. Now, notice what Jesus does here. And this has confused a lot of people. They misread this passage. Listen to what this says. Verse 33. uh, Or verse 34. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? Okay, now that comes out uh, uh, out of Psalm 82. But he goes on and he says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world that you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And therefore they were seeking again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. Now, what was that exchange all about? Well, again, a lot of people misread this. They think that Jesus is sort of backing away from the claim a little bit. Let me suggest to you, he's doing no such thing. He is not backing away from the claim to deity. He is running headlong into it. 
Again, listen to what he's doing here. They have accused him of blasphemy, being a man claiming to be God. Jesus points to the passage in Psalm 82, and he says, well, doesn't it say in the scriptures that you're gods? Well, what is that all about? What does that mean? Well, there are those, uh, by the way, you may be familiar with this passage if you, uh, if you read uh, um, uh, or if you've heard Michael Heiser speak uh, uh, or read his books or any of that. Um, um, you're aware that he has a very particular take on, on this passage and on Psalm 82 and stuff and other passages uh, that, that pertain to this concept of like the divine counsel and, and, and the use of the word Elohim and these kinds of things. Um, uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. But I, I don't agree with his take on this passage. Uh, and, and there's a very particular reason why. Um, his, his view here is very different from what Jesus, uh, I shouldn't say, I, I don't know his entire, I don't know that part of his view doesn't agree with what I'm about to say necessarily, but he does have an additional element to it revolving the concept of Elohim in Psalm 82 and that. But that being said, uh, looking just strictly at the passage here in John 10, um, Jesus asks them a question. He quotes the passage and says, well, doesn't the passage say your God's? And now, in the passage, and of course, again, Michael Heisner goes on this whole other thing, but at the very least, something that is in view there, and this is what Jesus draws on for chapter 10 in, his pas- in this passage in John 10, is that these gods, small g, those who are spoken of are people who are an authority over the people of Israel. Now, whether or not there's even extensions of a divine counsel in view, that's not necessary and really doesn't even necessarily help or contribute to the argument of what Jesus is saying here, necessarily. He makes the point that those in authority with the power over life and death and judgment in Israel have a position of judge like this, and the word Elohim is applied to them in the Old Testament, but it basically is speaking of the idea that they are to be judges, that they are to discriminate and discern between right and wrong. And sometimes those decisions and judgments they make have carry with them penalty of death, life and death. And so they have enormous responsibility to judge and to judge rightly. Now, the reason that matters so much in this passage in John 10 is because Jesus is calling upon them to judge rightly. He has twice now in the course of the passage said that he has done his works, these works in his father's name. He's even gone as far as to say, even if you don't believe in me, look at the works that are being done. Now, in the course of his ministry, these same Pharisees were accusing him of doing works by Satan, to which Jesus responded, you guys are like stepping on the line here of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, ascribing to the devil that which is God's working. Um... And so Jesus says, look, you guys are sitting in the seat of judgment here, and you're making the biggest judgment call of your career. Listen to what I'm saying. Look at what I'm doing. And and add that up with the claim that I'm making about myself. In other words, they should have been able to tell by what Jesus did that what he was saying about his deity was true. What were some of the things that Jesus had done? He had, right in front of the Pharisees, had healed the sick. He had restored sight to the blind, something that had never been done. Someone born blind had never been healed, but Jesus did it. Uh, He raised Lazarus from the dead, days after Lazarus had died. He spoke to the weather, and it listened to him. He cast out demons, 
and they were under his authority. They could not act against him. He had total, complete authority over them. Um, he multiplied food out of small rations, small bits, and fed multitudes. The words that he spoke, later on, a, cent- uh, you know, a centurion would be sent to arrest Jesus. And as he, sp- or, you know, whether it, was, whether it was a centurion or the temple police, but they went to arrest Jesus and they listened to what Jesus said and they were dumbfounded by it. They came back empty-handed when asked about it. They said, well, no one ever spoke like this man before. Even a centurion at the cross, surely this was the Son of God. Uh, Even the unbelievers, those who were outside of the promises and commonwealth of Israel, could recognize uh, something unique and distinct and special about this person. But their hatred and hypocrisy had blinded them so thoroughly that in this moment of truth, when they should have been able to, and and Jesus even said, what did he say? What did he say here? That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. In other words, the implication was, is that guys, dial it down, take a look, and judge rightly. But they didn't. Instead, they took up stones and wanted to stone him. The deity of Christ is something that is affirmed not only uh, by Jesus' own mouth, not only by the disciples, not only throughout the pages of Scripture, Old and New Testament, when we build the, the, the picture of Christ from the Scriptures, we get the picture of who he is. He is God in the flesh incarnate. But even his enemies were given enough to be able to demonstrate who he was. And even from their own mouths, they understood his claims. Well, Christ and the deity of Christ is, at the central, uh, is, is a central feature of the gospel. So back in Romans chapter 1, he is, of course, born as a descendant of David according to the flesh, but he is also clearly demonstrated to be the Son of God with power. The supreme example of this is his rising from the dead. As God, death could not hold him down. He had no sin of his own to, to atone for. It was only our sin, the sin of the world, not his own. And therefore, death had no hold on him. He took it to the grave, our sins to the grave, again, becoming our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so verses three and four, uh, I'm going to stop there because uh, each one of these passages in this these opening verses kind of touches on its own little theme here as Paul begins to un- unveil this letter that he's going to uh, ultimately to write. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and save the next thing that he begins to uh, speak to till next time. Now, I will say this in closing, though, we're, uh, you know, one of the most, well, the most common uh, or the common introduction from Paul, the, the common phrase that is used by Paul in the introductions to all of his letters are grace and peace or grace and mercy and peace, and that, as it may be. But, you know, grace and peace is the typical introduction of Paul's letters. And it will appear here uh, in, in, this, in these opening words, too, but it doesn't come until chapter or until uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. So we've mentioned how this is a rich theological treatise of the gospel. It is so rich in 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 theology that you it takes it takes getting all the way to verse 7 before he even brings his customary greeting. Look how much theology we've already begun to talk about. We're just a few sentences, not even we're like two sentences in. These Paul speaks in long sentences. Um, this is all still part of essentially the first sentence or so of, of, of this letter, and we've already covered a number of, of pretty important, meaningful, deep theological topics. 
And so this is how the book goes. It is so meaty that uh, this is knife and fork territory. So put your napkin on, get your notebook ready, get your knife and fork ready, because there's some good eating here in this book. There's some serious bread on the table. So uh, again, I'm going to stop there. We'll pick it up in verse five next time. But uh, if you want to share any thoughts or comments or anything, please feel free to do so in our comments section uh, below. I'll try to make sure to include references down there in the in the in the episode notes as well, so that you can look up these passages if you uh, didn't already turn to them when we did. And let me encourage you as we go through this stuff to spend some time on each of those passages, and and just allow them to kind of sink deep into your your heart and your mind, and 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 just the Holy Spirit will use this to help us get this broad sense. Uh, this rich kind of fingers going out, you know, this 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 pervasive sense of what the scriptures are talking about in the regards that we're covering. And so that being said, um, uh, again, you can leave comments in the, the section below if you want to check out our church's website and find out a little bit more about what we're about or our service times or locations or any of that. Uh, you can go to calvarychapelfranklin.com. We've also put the address for our Sunday morning and the different address for where we do our midweek study uh, in our uh, episode notes as well. And this, you can also find that on our website. If you want to go to my personal website, it's called parsonspad.com. We post these same videos there. Uh, you can also subscribe to the audio version if you'd prefer to to, uh, uh, to just listen. So, um, But all right, well, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace forever. And Father, we so thank you for the richness of your word. And we pray that as we read it and study it, that Father, not only would it not return void and accomplish that which you set it out to do, but that it would find fertile soil in our hearts uh, in which to germinate and bear fruit. And we pray that it would bear a hundredfold. So thank you for this word. Thank you for giving us ears to hear it. Thank you for giving us minds to consider it. Uh, thank you for the nourishment it brings to our very souls. And we pray that as we continue to study it, that we would grow thereby. And, and not just in some general sense, but ultimately help us to grow in the knowledge and the love of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. We praise you and bless you for all of this and ask you to continue to bless our times together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <music>